Well, we ended our study on Mark last week, chapter 4, where Jesus demonstrated his power and authority over nature. And he used the storm as a final exam for the disciples after teaching, after his teaching on the kingdom. So now we're going into chapter 5. So let's pray before we do that. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word brings us encouragement and life. Help us to rightly divide your word of truth. Help us to apply it to our life. It's not just an old textbook, Father, but it's, a, it's the living word of God. Use it to speak to us in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 5, verse 1 it says, So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the land of the Gerasenes. Now, if you remember last week, one of the reasons the disciples shouldn't have been afraid was because Jesus said, we're going to make it. We're going to go to the other side. In fact, Mark 4.35 says, as evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us cross to the other side of the lake. So that statement in and of themselves should not have scared them when they were on the storm because Jesus already promised them they were going to make it. Now, I thought about that and how many promises and truths in God's word that we know, but we don't really think it's for us. Now, I'm not saying everything in God's word is for us or to us. Everything in God's word is to help us, but not every promise in God's word is, is to us. But there are a lot that are. And a lot of things that God's word says applies to our life. But we don't, those words should keep you free from worry and free from fear. But sometimes, we let the situation overpower us so we forget what God's word says about that. So these guys, they got in the boat, they either forgot or they didn't hear what Jesus said. And when we fear something and we let worry consume us, it's probably because we either don't know what God said about it or we don't remember how God has worked in the past in our life. How many have had miracles and answered prayer in your prior life? previous to today. Do you remember those when you pray for something right now? When they crossed the river, God told Joshua, set up a bunch of stones there. That's going to be your memorial. So when people ask you, why are those stones there? You can tell them what God did. And everything that God does for us is that. It's a testimony to encourage not only us, but the people who ask us. You know, the Bible says, always be ready for an answer to those who ask you of the hope you have within. In other words, why are you a Christian? When you say something and you, something happens to you, it's to remember, so in the future when that happens again, you can pray and say, well, God did it here. I'm gonna trust God to do it again. And if someone comes to you who is struggling, you can tell them how God did it for you. Second Corinthians chapter one says that. Paul says, I struggled through all these things and now that I'm out of it, I can help those who are going through it. I remember I went to, when I was a young guy, I went to the hospital to visit someone who was really sick. And I had said to them, I know how you feel. And they rightly corrected me saying, no, you don't. You don't know how I feel because you're not, you've never been in a hospital bed like me. And they were right. But if someone who, was, who had that same kind of sickness, they're able to minister to them in a way that I can't. Because they've been there. They know how God helped them. And that's what God does for us. He allows us to have those type of testimonies to help other people as well. But these guys had forgotten everything that Jesus told them. And 
just before they left in the boat. And verse 2 says, Just as Jesus was climbing from the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit ran out from a cemetery to meet them. Now Jesus had just demonstrated his power over nature. And now he's about to demonstrate his power over evil. Boy, don't you wish he'd do that right now? <laughs> demonstrate some power over some of the evil we see going on. I can't hardly read the news because it's always so depressing and, and so many people are hurt and, and struggling. The part of the country that they were in was mostly Gentile, as indicated by the name Decapolis or Ten Towns that's referenced in verse 20. And this town, as you'll see later on, they raised pigs. And as you know, in Jewish law, pigs were unclean, so Jewish people wouldn't be raising those. This was a Gentile, mostly nation. And the Bible says as soon as he got out of the boat, as we see in verse 6, this guy saw Jesus coming from a while away. Verse 6 says, when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him. So this is the guy. He's possessed by an evil spirit. He sees Jesus coming close to the shore. And as soon as he sees him, he starts running to him. Now the man also, it says, lived in a cemetery. Now in, in those days, cemetery, rather than being in the ground, it was mostly a hollowed out cave. That was mostly their, that was their grave site. And the cemetery he was in was more of a future burial site. People would buy caves or hollow out a cave for their future death. That was their thing. That was, and so he lived among this area that was hollowed out graves waiting for the impending death of the people who owned it. So he, it'd be like kind of living in a future cemetery. And verse 3 goes on and says, that This man lived among the tombs and could not be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to control him. All day long and throughout the night, he would wander among the tombs and in the hills, screaming and hitting himself with stones. Now, it never tells us why or how this guy came to be possessed. Now, we know that the Bible says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his, that's his M.O., the enemy is always looking to get a foothold into your life through some area that you open to him. Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sin go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. That means there's little things in our life if we allow them in, we're giving the enemy a foothold. We may not be totally sold out, but you're kind of opening the door for him. You're opening the door for, to, to at least oppression if you're a believer. Because believers can't be possessed. But you're opening yourself to oppression. And if you're not a believer, you are opening yourself up to possession. And as soon as the devil gets a toe in your life, he's going to do everything to destroy it. Imagining sticking your foot in the door as someone's trying to close it. And as long as your foot's there, that door's not closing. And when the devil, you give the devil a foothold, you're, getting his, you're putting his foot in the doorway. And you're allowing him access. So let's look at that verse again. Verse 3 says, This man lived among the tombs and could not be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to control him. All day long and throughout the night, he would wander among the tombs and in the hills, screaming and hitting himself with the stones. I used to think when the Bible says, He came to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, how can you destroy someone and not kill them? This is how. You can allow their life to be destroyed. 
This guy lost his home. We assume he had a family. He lost them. He lost any friends he had. He lost his peace and he lost his purpose for living. This guy is out by himself, possessed by the enemy, ruining his life without killing him. And I wrote down, never underestimate the power of the devil. He is not all-powerful, but he does have great power if we allow him in. He's not more powerful than God. It's not like 51-49. God has all power. The devil has only the power that God allows him to have. But the more that we open ourselves up to that, the worse it's going to be. The stronger he's going to be in our life. And verse 6 says, as we read it before, when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet Jesus, and fell down before him. Now, some translations use the word worship, but that's not what the word means here. It means respect. Because the demon knows that Jesus is greatly superior to him. He was his enemy, but he knew he was more powerful than the demon possessing the guy. Now, obviously, at this point, people were not able to help him. Everyone tried to help him, take care of him, and restrain him. They couldn't do it. But now, and these guys were, the people that couldn't control him were probably the ones that forced him into the graveyard or then into the tombs. We know they tried to bind him. We know they tried to keep, them, keep him captive, but they could not. You know what? It tells me demons aren't afraid of people in themselves. Not afraid of us. They're afraid of those who have Christ. Acts 19.13 says, A team of Jews who were traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits, tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus. The incantation they used was this, I command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. Notice it wasn't, they didn't have a relationship. And the word incantation talks about spiritism. So they weren't believers. They were trying to exercise something. They had no idea what they were doing. Verse 14 said, Seven sons of Siva, a leading priest, were doing this. But when they tried it on a man possessed by an evil spirit, the spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I know Paul. Who are you? And he leaped on them and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and badly injured. Demons are not afraid of whatever power we have in ourselves. The only thing they're afraid of is the Holy Spirit living in us. And when this guy bowed down to Jesus, he knew who Jesus was. And so he was showing him respect, not, you know, not out of reverence, but out of fear. And verse 7 goes on and says, this is the man. He gave out a terrible scream, shrieking, Why are you bothering me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now the phrase, why are you bothering me, literally means, what have we in common? And he recognized that the one person who could destroy him was standing in front of him. And he used the, the term son of the most high God. Now in his respect and in his fear, he was hoping to try to get familiar with Jesus, kind of like, hey, we're buddies, kind of thing. And he used the title son of the most high God, not in reverence, but to let him know, hey, I know who you are. And I know whose you are. The demon recognized Jesus' deity. And the demon also recognized and he knew about the punishment that's going to come in the future. Because verse 7 says, I like the New Living Translation, says, for God's sake, don't torture me. 
You know why he said that? Because the demons and the devil know the Bible. James 2.19 says, Do you still think it's enough just to believe that there is one God? Well, even the de demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. The enemy knows the Bible. Knowing the Bible doesn't save you. How many know that? Just knowing it doesn't save you. A lot of people out there that are, they know the Bible better than a lot of us. But they're not saved. The devil is not saved and he knows the Bible. Now we mentioned on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago that one of the things that we don't worship, we don't worship the Bible. How many know that? We don't worship the Bible. We don't bow before the Bible. We worship the God who wrote the Bible. And the Bible tells us how to worship God. It's reverence, it has God's word in it, but we don't worship it. Going on in Mark 5 and verse 8 says, Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Because up to this point, this verse actually happens before the demon says, don't torture me. It's written backwards, but it, it's what it means. The demon was worried about his fate, which is why he cried or screamed at Jesus. Jesus says, come out of the man, you evil spirit. And the spirit says, what are you going to do with me? Don't torture me. Because he knows his ultimate fate. The demon believes the Bible to be true. He believes it when the Bible says there is an ultimate judgment that he is going to face. Matthew 8, 29. It says, again, talking about demons. They began screaming at him. Why are you bothering us, son of God? You have no right to torture us before God's appointed time. Demons know the torture's coming. They know punishment's coming. But how many today don't believe that? There, there is a judgment coming. Actually, two judgments coming. One for believers and one for those who don't believe. And our goal is to not let anybody we know hit the second one for those who don't believe. The one for believers is just basically you're in. Let's just look at your life and see what kind of rewards you're going to get. The second judgment is the ones that aren't going to make it to heaven. And our job is to make sure as many as we know don't make that second judgment. Verse 9 says, Jesus asked, what is your name? Jesus was trying to ascertain whether this guy had enough of himself left to recognize who he was. Did he have the right, any of his right mind left? And apparently, he didn't. Verse 9 says, And the Spirit replied, Legion, because we are many, there are many of us inside this man. Now, I can't imagine how the, the terror that's taken over this guy to this point. You have no longer any control over what you do, what you say, how you live. And imagine the horrors that he experienced all the time. He's, he's in there. But he doesn't, have any, he doesn't have any control over it because the enemy is controlling his life. Now the Bible never explains the psychology or physiology of demon possessions. It doesn't explain how that works. And I don't believe I've ever seen anyone possessed to this degree. But if you talk to missionaries on the mission field in some other countries, they'll tell you stories like this and how they were delivered from this. And talk about having...
new name and a new characteristic, that's it. When you're delivered from that kind of possession. We might equate that today to someone who's controlled by drugs or alcohol. When you come to Christ, a lot of times God instantly delivers you from that. You no longer have a craving or desire for that. That's an instantaneous change. Not always, but a lot of times it works that way. That's the same. Can you imagine having that same kind of attitude when Jesus just heals you of that? I've not ever seen a person possessed, but I believe if you look at the characteristics of those in the Bible who are demon-possessed, you might see a little bit of overlap with what we see today. This instance of possession showed a tendency to to self-harm. Verse 5 says, All day long and throughout the night he would wander among the tombs and the hills, screaming and hitting himself with stones. Now the NIV says it this way, Day and night among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, cutting seems to be a relatively new phenomenon. But here it's demonically inspired. Mark 9, skip ahead a few chapters in verse 22. We'll talk about another guy who's possessed. It says, the evil spirit often makes him fall into the fire or the water trying to kill him. You read the paper, suicide is on the rise everywhere. And it's hitting the young people. No coincidence. Thief comes to steal and to kill. And if he can do that through suicide, that's his full-time job. So we see the enemy active in the world today. And if you're open enough, even as believers... If you allow the enemy to control, we, t- we prayed about thought life here. I'm sure there are Christians who have thought the same thing. In fact, people used to ask me, we, did, we would uh, work with the teens. Teens would ask the question, do people who commit suicide go to heaven? If you're thinking about suicide, the enemy is controlling your thought life. And the things we pray for here today are something similar to that that your thoughts are so overwhelming that the world is so overpowering that you can't have any joy or peace. And the Bible says when there is freedom, God frees you from that kind of attitude, that kind of thought. And the more you read his word, the more it's gonna, you'll see it in your life. Ephesians 6, 12 says, we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against these mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against the wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. We're not fighting with people. When, uh, another example of how your preacher is not that good of a guy when I was not a Christian. When I, was, I have a younger brother who's 14 years younger than me. And so me and my other brother, who's two years younger than me, we'd take him out to the mall. And we would go into a store. And we would say to this, at the time, two-year-old or three-year-old, here, put this coat on and meet me in the foyer, in the, outside the store. Do you get what we're doing here? We're stealing it, and we're letting a two-year-old do it so he doesn't get in trouble. And so we would go meet him outside. Why? Because if he got caught... He's two or he's three years old. 
But if I got caught, I was in trouble. Who was the instigator behind that? Me. When you see people doing bad things, who is the instigator behind them doing bad things? The enemy. So we're not fighting against that person. We're fighting against the person who's putting those thoughts and controls in his life. So when we see somebody doing something, rather than getting upset at them, we pray for them that God delivers them from that because they're not the ones who are actually making, I mean, they are making the decision, but the enemy is really forcing their hand. The verse says, we are not fighting against people. We're fighting against the enemy. And so we pray that God breaks through into their life. And it's exactly what Jesus was doing with this possessed guy. He was breaking through what the enemy is controlling and allowing this guy to be free. The guy had no control over himself. Jesus released him from that control. The Bible says before we, are, before we become the Christ, we are slaves to sin. In other words, we can't help it but sin. That's who we are. I, I remember when, uh, you all know who Sigfield and Roy were? Vegas Act. They worked with you know, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Well, when one of the tigers bit him, my thought was, that's what tigers do. That is what tigers do. No one should be surprised at this happen because that's who they are, that's what tigers do. And sometimes when the enemy works, that is what he does. We should be surprised at the way things that go on because the enemy is the one who's in charge of it. We should not be surprised at that. So when we pray for someone, we're praying that God intervenes in their life to change who they are. Verse 10 goes on. Then the spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. Another reference of them, the place of holding that Jesus has for them before judgment. Luke's account tells us a little bit more specifically about this. Luke 8.31. It says, And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Now the abyss is the place that John tells us about in Revelation. Revelation 20 verse 1. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. So the, the demons know where they're going to go. They know the Bible and they know where they're going to go. And notice also that the demons did not know what Jesus was going to do. That tells me demons are not omniscient. They don't know everything. Nor does it say anywhere in the Bible that they can actually read your mind. Let alone they can't read God's mind. It's when we speak it out loud or we act on something gives the enemy the knowledge. The enemy can't read your mind. He can put things in front of you to test you and to tempt you and see what what, which way you're going to go. And from that he'll get an idea. But he can't read your mind. And he has no idea what Jesus is thinking at that moment. Mark 5.11 says, There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the evil spirits begged. And Jesus gave them permission. So the evil spirits came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the entire herd of 2,000 pigs plunged down the de- steep hillside into the lake where they were drowned. One commentary 
says this. I thought it was pretty interesting. To Satan, a pig is as good as a man. He will possess a pig just as easy as he possesses a man. And he will turn that man into a pig. What he was doing, he was showing the crowds the power of the devil and his total lack of respect or care for mankind. Pigs don't, or the demons don't care who they possess. They'll possess you just as much as they'll possess a pig and this mean, means no difference to them. Now notice it doesn't say that Jesus caused them to drive the pigs off the cliff. A lot of people think that well, Jesus made them do it. No. The act of possessing the pigs, that's what drove them off. The demons are so bent on destruction, they couldn't destroy the man, so they destroyed the pigs. Another visible illustration of, the, of what the devil wants to do to everyone. Verse 14, says, The herdsmen fled to the nearby city and surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. Everyone rushed out to see for themselves. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, but they were frightened when they saw the man who had been demon-possessed, for he was sitting fully clothed and imperfectly sane. Now, it seems from the context of this that these guys ran to the city to show them, hey, it's not my fault these pigs ran off. Come back and see. This is the guy who did it, not us. They wanted to bring some witnesses back so they would have an alibi to the owners of the pigs because these guys were herdsmen. They didn't own the pigs. And they were bringing people back to attest to the owner of the pigs, hey, I didn't do this. This guy did it. And they probably described the miracle, and some probably wanted to see what Jesus was doing, but they also wanted to see, hey, let's see this guy, this possessed guy we all know about. We want to see what God did in his life. Another perfect example of what we said before in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And it says this, what this means is that those who become Christians become new persons they are not the same anymore for the old life is gone and a new life has begun and if you got saved as an adult you can attest to the difference that God made in your life because you knew how you were and you knew how you, how you are and you would never be here if you stayed there God changed you Light bulb goes off in your head and you say, I get it. I understand. Where you couldn't understand before. But miracles and deliverances and healings don't necessarily change people. They're great to see. They're great to experience. But in and of themselves, it does not save you. You can have a miracle done for you in your life, a bona fide verifiable miracle and that miracle does not make you right with Christ it shows how good God is the Bible says the goodness of God leads people to repentance so when we look at our life we should say how good God has been to us and so we we should acknowledge the fact wow God you've been so good to me better than I deserve please forgive me of whatever I've done you know in my life that offends you because you've been so good it's only when you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins that it changes you. Verse 16 says, those who had seen what had happened to the man and to the pigs told everyone about it. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Why would anyone want to send Jesus away when they see him do this miracle? 
fear. They saw some of these guys lose their livelihood. They were more afraid of losing their jobs than healing a man. The income was more important than believing that Jesus could bless them just as much. It leads me to the question, how often do we know people that don't want to be saved or don't want to know about Jesus because they're afraid of what they are going to have to give up when they do that? And a lot of times when you hear preaching, that's all you hear. And I hope I don't do it all the time, but you feel like, well, I've got to give this up and give that up and do this and that. I don't want any of that. When it's nothing about that. That was me. I mean, I didn't want to give up a lot of things. Until God got a hold of me. And I realized I'm okay to give that up. It wasn't the act of giving it up that made me saved. It was doing it because I was saved. How often are people not wanting to come to church and not wanting to come to Christ because maybe they're afraid of losing friendships or family relations? You might, but then again, you might not. Maybe habits and choices that you like and you think God's going to make you give them up. Well, I like doing this. Is God going to make me give it up? I don't know. Why don't you ask Christ and see? Billy Joel does a song or did a song called Only the Good Die Young. How many know the song? None of you should know that song. There's a line in the song that says, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. I think Billy Joel's an atheist as far as I know. That line says that if he believes that if I'm going to be a saint or a believer... I'm going to have to give up everything that makes life enjoyable. In other words, all we Christians do is cry and moan and complain all the time about things we don't have. When it's actually just the opposite. Whatever God may ask you to give up or to change, he will replace with something infinitely better. And it may only be for a time. Maybe God wants to take something away to build you up. For me, it was music. I couldn't, I was big into that. And if I'm going to be a Christian, I, I'm not going to be a Christian if I, it means I've got to quit listening to music. Well, I got saved and God says, okay, let's try this. Throw everything, all your albums away. And I went, wait, hold on, Lord. But I did. And it wasn't because they were sinful, it was because for me, they were an idol. And I couldn't listen to secular music for years after that. Just because that was me. Now, God's released me from that, and I've got to be careful what I listen to, but, you know, I don't have that restriction anymore. And not, not because all secular music is sinful. It's just for me, God wanted me to do it. And may whatever God asks you to give up, it may only be for a time, but it may be something to help you build your faith. And once you come to know Christ, the things you think about are really important that you can't live without, that you'll find you don't care about them much anymore. I, I used to have this 
huge stereo system and these big floor speakers and no one touched it, man. No one, nobody touched it. I had set up, I had a, a cooling fan. It was, it was the bee's knees, man. This was, and I loved it. And then, like I said, I didn't take it to college because no one, none of my roommates were touching this stuff. And you know what happened? I gave it all away because it didn't really matter anymore. Do I miss it? Sometimes. But what I got was infinitely better than that. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, says it this way. He is no fool to give away that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. You come to Christ, you gain everything. You can't lose it. You can walk away, but you can't lose it. Giving up stuff that you're not going to keep anyways to gain something that you're never going to lose. When you get married, you give up the single life. You weren't going to keep it anyways. You're not going to be 20 all your life. And you gain something that you're not going to lose. Your spouse, your family. And since Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted... Verse 18 says, when Jesus got back into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go as well. Now, Jesus was probably the only person this guy ever received any kind of care and affection from or compassion. So, of course, he wants to stay with Jesus. You're the only guy that ever helped me. Don't you always want to be around people that encourage you and build you up? And we don't like to be around those who don't. Again, why God says get together as a church body. And it doesn't always have to be for a sermon. It's for fellowship. You build each other up. We have the men's dinners and the women's dinners and the functions we have. And the kids and the teens do stuff. They're going jumping this week. Altitude. Anybody want to join them in altitude? It's at Trampoline Park down in York. Oh, Josiah wants to go. I don't think you're going to go though, right? You build relationships. And you're able to minister to people maybe in a way that you can never do in a service. Why? Because you're with other people that, like-minded believers who are there to encourage you and build you up. Jesus tells us to be in the world, not of it. Right? In other words, we're not just part of the world system. We don't do everything the world does. We live in the world. We occupy. We do our jobs. We go to work. We do all that stuff. There's a reason we don't have, you know, a monastery on a hill somewhere. And just waiting for Jesus to come back. We don't seclude ourselves from the world. The Bible tells us we are supposed to be the light and the salt. We're supposed to interact with people to let them know what God did for us. We're supposed to light up the world with truth and we're supposed to preserve the culture as much as we can with salt. That's what they are, right? Salt is preservative. Light gets, scares the, the cockroaches away. Verse 19 says, But Jesus says, No, go home to your friends and tell them the wonderful things the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. What's he saying? Go tell someone your testimony. What did Jesus do for you? The guy didn't have any. There's a, there's a clip floating around that, uh, I don't know if you know who Alistair Begg is. 
He's a, I think he works out of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, he's from uh, somewhere in the Netherlands, I think. But you can tell by his accent. And he, he's preaching to preachers. He's a, I like to listen to him. And he was saying that he wants to meet the guy, the thief on the cross who makes it to heaven. He says, I'm going to meet that guy. To see, how, how did you get here, man? You know, five seconds ago, you were cursing Jesus, and now you're here. What did you do? And the bottom line was, he, you know, he doesn't know the doctrine of the justification by faith. He doesn't know what baptism and communion mean. He doesn't know salvation through grace, through faith. Doesn't know any of that. So why are you here? Because the guy in the middle cross said, I can come. Our job is to be the guy in the middle cross for somebody. Jesus says you can come. Why? All I did was ask for forgiveness. I didn't do anything else. Didn't go to church one day. Didn't get water baptized. How am I here? Because I asked Jesus to let me come. What did God do for you? And you may not think it's a powerful testimony, but maybe it's a testimony that somebody needs to hear. I used to think that, you know, people who get saved out of drugs and alcohol have a powerful testimony, and it's true. But I think someone who was raised to serve Christ all their life and never got into that stuff has just a powerful testimony. That God was able to keep me from any of that stuff. It was all around me, but God kept me from getting into it. Now, this was the Gentile area, so he was kind of the first missionary to the Gentiles. Now, notice Jesus didn't tell this guy to be quiet. Like he told other guys, look, don't tell anybody, just keep it to yourself, go to the priest, don't tell anybody. What's the difference? Well, the Jews thought their Messiah was going to be someone who overthrew Rome. That's what they were banking it on. And all the, the Jewish crowds and the Romans would think the same thing. Okay, if this guy's the Messiah, he's going to bring a revolution. And the Romans, it's going to pose a problem for the Roman government. And they would have to push him down before he even got started. So he was kind of not, he's not letting it out that he was a Messiah to the Jewish people. But the Gentiles, they didn't care. They, had, they, weren't, you know, they didn't care about Rome. They had no such thoughts. They weren't expecting a Messiah. And they didn't think anybody was going to overthrow Rome. So it's okay to tell them that, that someone is here to heal them of their diseases and their sicknesses and to bring them into close relationship with Christ. In verse 20 it says, So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to tell everyone about the great things Jesus had done for them. And everyone, everyone was amazed at what he told them. Notice he instantly obeyed. How often do we argue with God? Lord, I don't really don't want to do that. And if we keep arguing, God's going to make you do it. But this guy didn't argue, he didn't complain. He simply did what Jesus told him to do. And all he did was tell them what Jesus did for him. Period. That's a testimony. And your testimony can help other people in their life. Maybe you run into somebody who has the same issue that you had before you came to be a Christian. You have a unique testimony to tell them of what God did for you. Something I may not have or anybody else may have, but you may have it. This guy had no theological teaching. He didn't know the Old Testament at all. 
Yet the testimony of a healed man amazed everyone. You may not have such a dramatic testimony, but everyone has a story to tell. And we all know what we are like compared to what we are now. You may not have been delivered from a demon or had a dramatic healing, but you've been changed. You're different. How are you different? And that change that happens when we believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is a noticeable and tangible change. People should notice. They won't know what it is they're noticing, but they should notice something. And that change should be just as noticeable and tangible as the guy who was delivered from a demon. People should see something different about you. There's a story, we may get to it later, that Jesus heals a blind man. They call him before all the leaders and say, tell the truth, what happened to you? He said, look, all I know is I was blind, now I see, period. That's all I know. That's all you have to know to be a testimony. And what happens is now you begin to see and feel compassion and the love that this guy felt from Jesus. You begin to experience that in your life and now you're able to have compassion on other people. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment? Maybe you're here this morning and Oh, there's so many ways we can go with this. Maybe you've allowed things in your life that you know you shouldn't have and they've gotten a grip on you. Well, as we rang this, sang this morning, there's freedom. God can release you from that. Just make a choice. Ask Jesus to help you with it, and he will. Maybe you're here and you've never really come to Christ for forgiveness of sin. You've heard about it. Or maybe you've been in church all your life. And you go to church, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus. There's a difference. Church doesn't save you. This church really can help you in any way other than pointing you to the one who can change your life. So if you've never come to Christ, you've never had that experience where the light bulb goes off in your head and say, now I get it. I don't understand anything, but I understand the relationship I have. If that's you, you're here for a purpose. You're not here by accident. You're not here by coincidence. You're not even here because you thought to come. You're here because God wanted you to be here. And God put it in your mind to be here this morning. So God can do a work in your life. So if that's you, and you want to have your sins forgiven, you want to start with a clean slate, this is your day. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Maybe you're here and you've served Christ for a lot of years and you've kind of gotten away from it. You used to really be involved in church. You were excited about the things of God. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, 
the cares of this life seems to get involved and push you away. The Bible says today is the day to come back to that. You want to get involved. You want to be excited about the things of God. You want to be involved in what God's doing in the local church. When Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? 70 times 7, Jesus says. That just means as many times as, as you need to. So maybe you've come back to God a number of times and you just say, well, I just can't come back anymore. And he's probably sick of come, me coming back and asking for forgiveness. But that's not true. That's the enemy telling you that. God is the God of 2nd, 3rd, 75th, 490th chances. So if that's you, I don't have to see your hand. It's just between you and the Lord. And you want to make that commitment today to, you know, I'm going to start serving you, Lord, with your help, by your power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to rededicate my life to you. And if that's you, I'd just like to meet with you after church just to help you along, give you some information. So, Father, we do come to you this morning, and we thank you. We thank you for what you've done in our service this morning, Lord. We're, who are we, Lord? Who is Dover Assembly that you care about us? But your word says you do. And we thank you for moving this morning. We thank you for the power of the Spirit, which is here. And we thank you for the lives that you're working on right now. From me all the way down, Lord, we all got a ways to go. And we thank you, Lord, you're helping us to get there. Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here. Allow them to really experience not just the knowledge of you, but the knowledge combined with the experience of having that relationship with Jesus. As we said before, knowledge doesn't save you. It's what you do with that information that saves you. So Lord, I pray that the words that we Study this morning the words we're reading in your word. Don't just fill up our head. Let those words fill up our heart as well. And allow those words to transform us. Lord, I pray your blessings upon this entire church that God, you would go with them every day of the week. Allow them to experience tangible things in their life that they can only attribute to you. And Father, next week we will hear about those things and testimonies and praise reports about what you're doing. Your word says you're active all the time. You don't take a day off. Well, you do the seventh day. But here you're working in the church. So Lord, I commit each person to you. Bless them, take care of them, meet their needs, and allow them to experience you in a tangible, realistic way, not just through hearsay, but allow them to experience you personally in their life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Let me know what God's doing in your life. Let me know how God's working. Whether or not it has anything to do with the sermon in church, what's God doing for you?